we're going to, Grace Chapel, we're going to take a parting look, all right? A parting look at the end of the book of Judges that we, we looked at last week. Um, we're finishing off that book, but, you know, I was thinking about it this week. We can't just walk away from this book leaving it the way it ends. I mean, it's so depressing. Um, everybody's shaking their heads and they're saying, Pete, what was that all about? I mean, that was like a bad B movie. I mean, it was really like... <clears throat> so I want to, this morning, I just want to, together, I want to sort out a couple of lessons from the blast of the double-barreled ending of the book last week. Uh, some of you mentioned how, to me, uh, later in the week and after last Sunday's message, you came up and you said how in our face <laughs> that ending of the book is, those last five chapters. What's going on here? What are we supposed to take away from this? Is there anything positive? So, a couple lessons, three in particular. Lesson number one. And it comes from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the focal point of last week, those last three chapters. It's all about Benjamin. And it's about the coming of the very first king. His name is Saul, which is going to be the focal point of all the other books in chronological order that follow Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Israel's continual history. So, so the book of Judges, I hope you've picked this up as we've gone. I tried to emphasize it. It's designed to prepare you and I for the coming of human kings, uh, and King Saul being the first one in First Samuel. And also Judges was designed to create this anticipation in us for the king of all kings, uh, King Jesus, who we are introduced to in John chapter 1. It's an arrival that you and I begin celebrating and remembering over the next four weeks. Yeah, it's just four weeks. Isn't it crazy how fast time goes? But on four occasions in the last five chapters of Judges, it's declared there was no king in Israel, just flat out. And one way the book of Judges prepares you and I and the Israelites for the coming human kings is by how the tribe of Benjamin is characterized. We can't miss this. In Judges chapter 1, if you can remember back, like, like 10 weeks ago, like 12 weeks ago, uh, in Judges chapter 1, when the tribes are told, all the tribes of Israel are told, you've got you've to occupy this land that under Joshua you just conquered, all right? You've got to occupy it. And Benjamin's occupation is singled out amongst uh, and compared to all the other tribes, and it's described as a complete failure. Back in Judges chapter 1, they allowed the Canaanites to live among them. It's Judges one twenty one. So now we get to the end of the book, hundreds of years later, and as we viewed with complete repulsion last week that story, of the tribe of Benjamin, it's become, that tribe has become fully Canaanite, even as we saw in the city of Gibeah, Sodomite. So when Israel asks in the next story in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, and they say, we, God, we want a king. We want a king to judge us. Not the judges you've always raised up. We want a king to judge us like all the other nations. <laughs> and you and I, having soaked up the book of Judges, right, we should be horrified with the selection of Saul as the first king of Israel because guess what tribe 
Saul is from? Take, take a wild guess. Begins with a B. Benjamin. Exactly. A man from the tribe of Benjamin. But wait, there's more. Not just from the tribe which was almost eradicated by their own brothers and sisters for its rebellion, but a man whose hometown is, go ahead, begins with a G, Gibeah. The actual city where we read last week, the evil started. A city that is remembered by prophets like Hosea as a symbol of evil. Are you getting it? How God kind of weaves this picture for us to see? If there is ever a king who ironically fulfills the people's request, it's Saul. Guess what Saul's name means? Asked for. <laughs> it's like God's going, okay. All right, this is, just, this is what you really want, right? You guys want this? You're praying for it for Christmas? Okay. So the people get a king like the nations, but they don't get a king after God's own heart. And just read Saul's story. Sometimes God gives us just what we ask for. Be careful what you ask for. Lesson number one. Lesson number two. It comes from that vindictive massacre we read about last week. And it's just, every time I think about it, I'm just like, did that actually happen? The writer is actually showing us that the, that, that failure to conquer Canaan and to walk with God way back in the first place has led now to civil war and genocide of an entire family tree branch. you got the 12 tribes coming off, and they just go, boom, we're going to take one off. Better described as fratricide. And we are shown where half-hearted attempts at following God lead us every time, guaranteed. So you got this war between brothers, and soon all the warriors... But for 600 of them from the tribe of Benjamin are wiped out. There's 600 warriors left out of like over 26,000. The rest are all dead. The victory is complete. But wait, the slaughter is not complete. Turning back, it says in chapter 20, verse 48 of Judges, turning back, Israel put all the towns of Benjamin to the sword. Every single man woman, child, even animals are slaughtered. So here's the irony. What Israel was not willing to do to the Canaanites by God's explicit command in the very beginning, they're now willing to do to their own family at the end. This is where not following God naturally leads humans like you and me. You say, well, Pete, that's them. That's not me. Hang on. This is where bitterness takes you. Are you bitter about anything in life today? <laughs> Everybody, everybody's looking down right now. Uh, do you ever get vengeful? Uh, you know it's a result of spiritual blindness. And this is where it will get you. Because vengeance always demands not one eye, but two eyes in revenge for every one eye that is lost. It escalates. We have seen this in the political theater of our nation over the last two years. Everything escalates. 
We've seen it in the church. Lesson number three, there's an oath problem. Note to self, never make an oath. (laughs) Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I think Jesus said that, didn't he? I think somebody said that. We read here in the end of uh, Judges, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah when they had all gathered together. That is where they first gathered. That was the location. All the tribes except for Benjamin got together to hear from, remember, that Levite scoundrel who lied through his teeth and hid the truth. And then they pronounced judgment based on what he had said on the town of Gibeah. We're going to wipe these guys. Actually, they weren't even going to wipe anybody out. They just wanted to turn over the bad guys, the sodomites from that town. We'll take care of it. It was a rash vow, and, here, and they repeat it in chapter 21 because they've got a problem. They say, remember the vow we made where we said not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite? Remember when we said that? They were bent on extermination. But it created this huge problem for them because they had buyer's remorse. You ever had buyer's remorse? Yeah, <laughs> just last week. You know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But then I got at home, and ah, not so much. <laughs> but they had put all the Benjamite women to death. There's no more Benjamite women. And we got 600 Benjamite warriors left over. They had effectively exterminated a whole tribe, and the 600 who were left, because they felt pity for them, oh, thanks a lot, 600 who were left are going to have to marry outside of Israel so there will no longer be a tribe of Benjamin. There will be some other group of people. It's incredible to me that I read verse verse 2 of chapter 22 that they should weep bitterly about this to God, asking, why has this happened? (laughs) As though it's somehow God's fault. Lord, why is America in the state it is today? How could you let this happen? It's just as dumb a prayer. They should have known exactly why this happened. But isn't it so much easier for you and I to put God in the wrong than it is to engage in self-reflection? How many of you love self-reflection? one person. And we, get, we do this. We do this when we are incensed by what we see on the news, by what's happening maybe in our own family or, or with our neighbors. We're incensed at, at this perceived wrongdoing, and we're just livid, and we cry out to God, and we say, why, God, could you let this happen? And we inside, we want to seek vengeance. I've got to make this right. Um, There's got to be justice, and we might even call it justice, but typically what I see is vengeance does not match the wrong. Vengeance is blind. It's emotional. We're blind to how we might be in the wrong, and maybe we're a part of causing that wrong to happen. Self-reflection. Or certainly, we have been wrong in the past, right? And don't we all sure appreciate being shown a little mercy when we're wrong? Everybody's putting their hand up now. 
but we're not all that free at giving it out to others when we've been hurt. And because there is no self-reflection, the Israelites don't learn from their mistakes. They're just like us. So they build this altar in chapter chapter 21, verse 4. They build an altar and they offer sacrifices. Well, finally, but we discover in the process that that wasn't the only oath they made when they were so incensed and angry, that they made another foolish oath, and it's they recount it in verse 5, like they're bemoaning the things they've done, that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah to come together for this huge congregational meeting should certainly be put to death. Here's where covering up one sin, those foolish, rash vows, with another sin begins its downward spiral. They discover that the men, somebody pipes up. There's always somebody, right, at the meeting who pipes up. Wait, wait, wait. You know the guys in that city, um, uh, Jabesh Gilead, that city over there, yeah. They, verse 9, 8, 9, they failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah. So this presents a potential solution to people who are bent on doing what is right in their own eyes. We will always find a solution. Since those men weren't there, this is, this is the reasoning, so stay with me here. It gets complicated. Since those men were not there, they didn't promise to not give their daughters to the Benjamites. Therefore, they also must be killed, which was our second dumb oath after the first dumb oath. But this solves our dilemma. So the assembly dispatched a small army to the town killing every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They carry off 400 virgins to give to the 600 Benjamite warriors who are left. Problem solved. (laughs) It's like, wasn't anybody at the meeting going, I don't think this is a good idea to wipe out a whole people group in a city and take the, da- the daughters, anybody who's a... I don't think that's a... I don't think God would like this. Except, how many of you are good at math? 600 minus 400 equals, and all God's people said, 200. Yeah. But all of a sudden, another solution presents itself. And somebody goes, you know, if this was a movie that you and I were watching... You know, and I get up after and go, I'm really sorry we had to watch this. <laughs> I mean, that would never happen in real life. That's so made up. Somebody says, oh, close by there is this annual feast of the Lord. It's going on. And all the virgins come out and dance out in the field. So they send the remaining 200 Benjamite warriors to, I quote, Rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees a wife from the girls of Shiloh. That's their solution. By the way, Shiloh is what? We talked about this a couple weeks ago in detail. It's where the tabernacle of God is, the tent of meeting that God had Moses 
construct. It's the place where you worship God. It's a place where you hear from God. It is the place of meeting. Like maybe they should have checked out Shiloh like months ago. Anyway, the human ingenuity of all this is because these girls has been, have, have been forcibly abducted, nice way of saying kidnapped, their fathers would not be oath-breakers because since you did not give your daughters to them. No, no, we stole your daughters from you and gave it to them, which makes it okay. Whew. We got out of that one, huh? Therefore, a series of wrongs can make a right if you live your life by your own eyes. All you who have parents, never repeat that to your mom and dad. So let's wrap up the end of the book. Let's gain some perspective on our own times. I think, I hope that as I've been saying this and recounting the book and these three lessons, you've been going, yeah, those all three apply to right now, today, where you and I live. So to wrap it up, an assembly representing the great nation of Israel gathers to do justice initially for a single raped and murdered woman, right? That's, that's the reality. Justice, yes, absolutely needs to be justice because a woman was raped and murdered. That assembly ends up vindictively wiping out almost an entire tribe of its own people. That assembly plans and promotes the murder of a whole town to fix that extermination. That assembly orchestrates the abduction of the girls from two Israelite towns to button up the problem they have created. And four, how does Judges end? Verse 24, it ends, everybody returns home. Yeah, except for the tens of thousands of slaughtered people, except for families who are now without daughters, except for kidnapped women who are now forced into marriage. This is a functionally pagan culture. It accepts decisions at best based on human reasoning and at worst hastily and vengefully made. It's emotionally charged mob justice. Have we seen any mob justice over the last couple years in this country from every side and every angle and all done in the name of justice? Each step that Israel takes, get this, it's in chapter 20, verse 13, is intended to purge the evil. I'll vote for that. I want, how many of you want to purge evil? Absolutely. And this is the backdrop to all the decisions they've made. Each step Israel takes has to solve the problems created by their previous mistakes. Every action, it turns out, causes bigger problems. And God, in the last five chapters of Judges, is a convenient deity to take the blame for all their mistakes and to go to for help when things get beyond our control. This is the problem with human solutions. 
This is the problem with human solutions to essentially spiritual problems. That's what's wrong with our world. It's spiritual. It's that, humanly speaking, uncontrollable problem of evil. We cannot control it. There is no military campaign. There is no state policy or law that can solve a problem that resides in and issues from the human heart. Forget about it. Don't vote for that. Only a revival of faith in God through Jesus Christ's death on the cross can solve this. That's it. But Israel has never recognized the fact that they are as much under oppression and slavery as if they had a physical foreign master. They are spiritually in darkness, but they don't realize it. These chapters, especially the final five, are are a picture of how societies like ours must function. This is how it's going to be when we insist on leaving God out of the equation. This is where it goes. When, when, when we are worshiping something other than God in our city, in our home, maybe even in our churches, deciding what seems right, what seems logical, what seems reasonable in our own eyes, wonder, wondering why things never seem to get better for long, and then deciding that God, if He even does exist, He certainly can't care that much about people to let this happen. Come on. But that's also a picture of the people of God today, and that would be you and I, the church. No pagans were to blame for the last five chapters of Judges, for the oppression, for the rape, for the murder, for the massacre, for the abductions. It was all Israel's doing, God's children. All through the book of Judges, and nowhere more than this at its end, Israel's worst enemy is Israel. And so sadly, the same is true of God's people in every age until Jesus comes back, the true king, the true bringer of justice. The author convinces us that we need a Savior, but you leave the end of the book going, what kind of Savior? And God may be using the author of Judges to show us that we need a deliverer, but by the end of the book, we've come to wonder whether any human king could ever be the answer. The histories of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which follow this chronologically, follow this long line of human kings in Israel who lead the people at best, not much closer to, and at worst, very far away from obedience to God. And by the end of those books, we know we need someone beyond even King David himself. And that's where the next book comes in. I want to challenge you 
after we finish Judges, it's only short. It would take you like a half hour at most. Read Ruth. It follows right after Judges. It's so divinely and strategically placed in the canon of the Old Testament, that book of Ruth. Ruth provides this contrast to the lingering shock that you probably have from reading the last five chapters of Judges. The the impression at the end of Judges is that the nation is in chaos. It has no moral compass. It It doesn't have any sense of right or wrong anymore. And then Ruth takes place not after but during those dark days. Ruth presents a very different view of what God can do in the middle of darkness. In Ruth, some people do lead peaceful lives. In Ruth, some people do help one another, look out for the poor and those who are suffering. In Ruth, while the overwhelming chaos swirls around them, God is at work in people, and there is always a remnant following God and doing what God wants done, regardless of what the government, what the neighbors, what anybody says or does. In the final chapters of the book of Judges, the Israelites repeatedly perform acts that to them, in their own eyes, seem moral. This is the right thing to do, but in fact lead to theft, murder, rape, ultimately civil war. And by contrast, you come into the book of Ruth, and we're introduced to this guy named Boaz. Remember Boaz? We, we did Ruth a couple of years ago, but there's this guy, Boaz. He's an Israelite, and he performs these acts of godly virtue. He's like a stud, spiritually speaking now. He even... He even looks beyond the surface of Ruth being what? She's not an Israelite. A Moabite. The Moabites were oppressive rulers of Israel at certain times in the book of Judges. Boaz looks beyond that, and he recognizes the goodness and the mercy that God is doing through her. The Israelites and Judges are a society that is superficially virtuous. Virtuous. They've got the tabernacle in Shiloh. They, they offer offerings to God. They, they make pretenses of seeing, what, I wonder what God would want us to do in this situation. But in reality, they're corrupt to the core. And the Israelites in Ruth are a society that learns to look beyond surface appearances, something that you and I need to practice so much more often. We judge people on the outward appearance, and God judges the heart. Are you a child of God? Then you need to judge by the heart, not by what you see on the outside, not by the facts as we know them, or or (laughs) the facts as have been presented to us by people who have no bias, of course. They look beyond surface appearances to recognize what God is doing in history right now. Is God doing something? Yeah, or is he asleep? The book of Judges had a refrain that ultimately turns into this declaration at the conclusion in verse 25. It's how the book ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did as he pleased. 
And the book of Ruth concludes in stark contrast to that in those same times with the pronouncement that there is a new era of kingship coming, the birth of King David in Ruth chapter 4, verse 22. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, she suggests that her daughter, daughter-in-law's Ruth and Orpah go back to their own land just let me go. Let me head back to Israel. Everything's a mess. You guys just go back and take care of yourself. Do the best you can. You don't want to come to Israel. You guys are Moabites. Ruth's reply, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. And the book of Ruth ends with the public celebration of a new home in Israel for Boaz and his new wife, Ruth. And Ruth, a Moabitess, is now in the DNA of Jesus, the Messiah King. I was, I was talking to Wade earlier. It's like, how did the Israelites, Jews, let the book of Ruth and Judges even exist in their canon? It's so revealing. It's so what you wouldn't expect. The book of Ruth presents this contrasting, inspiring journey of God's people from tragedy to triumph. The story is the mirror opposite of Judges that we're leaving, which is a depressing journey, a story of triumph to tragedy. And while Judges is about breaking covenant and disobeying God's laws, Ruth is about keeping covenant and living God's laws. Not just verbalizing them, but living them out and how you interact with people. Judges emphasizes how people turned into Canaanites and were cursed. Ruth emphasizes sanctification, being set apart for God's use and being blessed. Which do you want? Judges documents acts of self-interest and fulfillment, and Ruth documents self, uh, acts of self-sacrifice. Judges depicts the lack of human kingship. Ruth depicts a coming line of divine kingship. In Romans, Paul wrote this. It's Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 24. And Paul said this about himself, which is very unusual. Wretched man that I am. <laughs> this, is, this is a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Wretched man that I am. Wrote most of the New Testament. Wretched man that I am. The Apostle Paul declares this as he reflects on his own sinfulness. And then he says... Who will deliver me from this body of death? Hmm. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That understanding, I hope you have. I hope we have as a church family. That understanding that we have of ourselves. Do we? That understanding that we have of our present world. That understanding that we have of the book of Ruth in light of that, that may come naturally to you and I as Christians. We read Ruth not as a sequel to Judges, but there's this emphasis that emerges from the opening 
chapter of the story of Ruth, and the very first verse sets the historical time frame, as I said, in the days when the judges ruled. Ruth happened. And we're braced for bad news because it's the day of the judges. And guess what? In the first chapter, bad news comes. There's famine, there's flight, there's a repetition of deaths. Naomi is impoverished and bitter about what God is doing in her life. But then the light begins to shine brightly as God providentially provides prosperity, as people begin to show kindness to one another, as God rewards His people with present and future blessings. You know, given the trend of Israel's unfaithfulness, you might wonder how they even deserved a king like David. <laughs> and the book of Ruth answers that question by placing a spotlight on one faithful family in Bethlehem of Judah that will turn out to be David's genealogical and spiritual family. It confirms that God is at work even in our midst today. He's got his hand on us for specific purposes. He has plans that were ordained before he created the universe for you and for me. Despite the wicked days we live in. You know, we're always going to live in wicked days, always have since Adam and Eve, until Jesus comes back. I mean, there's some clarity with that, right? There are times when God's presence feels absent from our lives. Would you agree? You've had those days? Like He's just not there when we need Him. He didn't come through like we thought He should come through. But nothing could be further from the truth after you read Judges along with Ruth. Naomi had a bleak perspective on her life, and it was bleak. It stunk. She was caught in a moment and couldn't get out of it. But we see God working behind the scenes. He's always there, orchestrating her future. He gave her a daughter-in-law, Ruth, a foreigner, who would love and encourage her every step of the way. He, he gave her a daughter-in-law who herself would be devoted to God. He gave her a daughter-in-law who would be faithful to God's plan in her own life. And perhaps there are times when we live and it seems desperate. Let the book of Ruth, which accentuates the book of Judges, encourage you. It's a book of hope. It shows us that God is still present and at work among His faithful people. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Are we going to be the faithful people? Are we covenanting with God and saying, you are our God. You are our master. We are waiting for the coming king who's going to rectify and make everything right. But until then, we are yours. Do what you will. Rise with me, and let's respond to the only one worthy of a response, really, to our holy God. And let's do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
are often when we read your word that you've left us. It's so precious, but it's so overwhelming. We are flooded with situations in our families, in our relationships, at our workplace, with neighbors. We are not able to come up with really good answers for what ails our, our country. We got ideas. The Lord, we come to you as the author and finisher of our faith in whom our only hope and answer lies. And Lord, keep us focused on your gospel, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. May that be number one. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.